I had a mystical experience when I was 18. And that experience showed me what was possible. So it was um, very revolutionary. I felt like my ego dropped away. I was no longer concerned for myself, for my image, for any, any personal anything. And I just felt like I was on fire with the light of God. <laughs> Welcome to the Holy Sparks podcast. Our mission is to illuminate the brightest lights in the Jewish world and beyond so that we elevate the Holy Sparks within us and make the world around us a better place. I'm your host, Saul Kay. If you're looking for wisdom, mentorship, and inspiration, in the right place. All right, welcome everyone to the Holy Sparks podcast. I am super excited today. A very, very good friend of mine is joining us. Really one of the people responsible for me getting involved with Jewish music all together. And so I want to read his short bio here and then we'll get into the heart of it. So Reb Brian Yosef Schachter Brooks is a Jewish spiritual teacher and musician. He has been teaching the practice of presence, meditation, mindfulness, and Judaism since 2006, and founded Torah of Awakening in 2016. He is the author of Kabbalah for Beginners, or Kabbalah for Beginners, published by Rockridge Press, and Integral Jewish Meditation, Three Portals of Presence for Spiritual Awakening. Reb Brian Yosef received his smicha ordination as Minister of Sacred Music, Reb Yosef Braya Zohar Menatzeach Baltefila, from Reb Zalman, Zechron Racha, 2012. Spiritual teacher and awakener of souls from Sheikh Ibrahim Baba Farajaje, may his secret be sanctified, and Rabbi Sarah Leah Schley in 2012. Certification as a teacher of Jewish meditation, Mora Lehit Bodidut, from Dr. Rabbi Avram Davis in 2004. He holds a Bachelor of Music from the Eastman School of Music from 1991. So, ladies and gentlemen, would you please put your hands together and welcome my good friend, Reb Brian Yosef? Let's go. Oh, that's how we do it. Louder in the back, louder in the back. Yeah, that's how we do it. Welcome <laughs> to the show. Yes, put your hands together. Oh my goodness, we're excited. I told them about you. Okay, calm down, people. Calm down. Okay, calm down. Red Brian, welcome to the Holy Sparks podcast. Thank you so you? much. How are you doing? It's wonderful to be here with you today. Awesome. So, uh, for those of my audience that don't really know you, don't really know your story. I want you to kind of uh, talk them through your upbringing. Um, we're going to talk some of the parallel streams. There's the Jewish stream, musical stream, and eventually they come together. So why don't we start with the uh, the Jewish, you know, kind of your, your childhood and, and upbringing and talk about that, and then we'll go from there. Sure. Well, I did not have very much Judaism in my my uh, nuclear family growing up, we lit the Hanukkah candles and that was about it. I have a, an early memory of uh, my father uh, agreeing to read some Bible to me after I pestered, pestered him about it for a while. And that was my uh, first hearing of Bereshit, the book of Genesis. He read maybe the first few days. <laughs> and other than that, there was nothing. However, my father's sister 
And her husband and their kids, who my cousins, they uh, became pretty, uh, you could call them orthodox or conservadox, you know, somewhere in there um, when I was about six years old. And we started going to their house for Pesach. And then as I got a little older, I started going for Shabbat. And I was just really attracted to it. I don't know why, uh, especially since my experience of it was kind of negative because, because before they became observant, I would go over to their home for a weekend visit and we would watch Land of the Lost on Saturday mornings. And then all of a sudden we weren't allowed to watch TV anymore on Saturdays. <laughs> so it was a, it was like a terrible thing. But nevertheless, I was very uh, just... Um, what's the word like uh, it just just impressed by something that I couldn't see it was almost as if you were to take a, a lamp some kind of light and cover it with some various coverings and if you looked at it in the right way you could see a little bit of the light shining through and so you you would wonder what's under there, what's what's illuminating it a little bit. Let me take off the cover and check out what's underneath. That's how I always felt about Judaism. There was some kind of light there, and it was covered over by the practices that I was experiencing around me. The Hebrew prayers I saw, I heard chanted, the the rituals, the kiddush, the not being able to watch Land of the Lost on Saturdays, like all these things. Like what is this? Uh, but there's something hidden in there. And that's what that's what really drew me and kept me coming back until it much later it became part of my life. Amazing. So was there a point at which you decided, hey, this is the path I really want to to go down? And was there a person or a, a series of events that led you to that moment of, hey, you know what, I really want to take this on as my practice. You know, I've seen the I've seen the glow of the lamp beneath the lampshade. Yeah. I want to take it off and I want to really encounter it. That's a good question. I don't remember a specific time. In fact, I feel like even now <laughs> I'm still making the decision <laughs> every day to continue trying it out. <laughs> you know, it's like um, when I, as I got older and I, I just continued to read more and experience more. And then when I went to college, I started to go to uh, Chabad and I became really close with a Chabad rabbi who was on the campus of the university, which was near the music school that I went to. And so I was just enthralled. You know, he would sing Nigunim. That was my first experience of singing Nigunim was at his Shabbos table. And, um, I guess part of the part of the the lack of decisiveness about it was the fact that there is no one Judaism. There are many different kinds of Judaism, and there's a huge spectrum of um, strictness and practice. There is there is a huge uh, tapestry of beliefs that form this, um, you know. Uh, belief systems that some of which contradict each other within the different movements. Mm. Um, and so it took me a long time to find what my relationship was because I, I discovered again and again that I couldn't completely commit myself to one of the movements as they existed. 
Um, I I loved my friend, my friend, the, the Chabad rabbi. I felt so sorry that I couldn't do that because I knew he would have been so happy if I had become a Chabad rabbi myself. <laughs> but I just couldn't do it because um, for many reasons. But one, I would say probably the main one was that it seemed clear to me that there were certain things that were incorrect about it. <laughs> and so I could have just put that aside, which I think some people do. Some people have a sense that, okay, I would, this isn't right in the tradition. This belief isn't really correct. It's not true. But nevertheless, I want to be part of this community. I want to experience the practice in a deep way. So I'm just going to not bother with that and put myself fully into it. And, um, but for me, I, I did, I put myself as, as deep into it as I could, but without um, sacrificing truth as I saw it. I love it. Okay. And so this is another question, which I may or may not be remembering this about you correctly or incorrectly. So please yeah. correct me. But I feel like at a certain point, there was some conversion process. I don't know if this is, if I'm remembering that correctly or not, and that you did it within a particular movement, but then maybe now you're, you're, you've expanded that. So can you talk about that? I think it'd be really interesting for people to to understand that and why you did that specifically. Right. Well, my mother is not Jewish. So halachically, I was not Jewish. My father is, is Jewish. And so, um, so that, hence the, that was my father's sister's family that I experienced Shabbat with when I was young. And, um, when I became involved with Chabad in college, it became an issue. Like, um, am I going to convert and become fully Jewish and therefore be able to make the minion and, um, you know, have an Aliyah and different things like that. And I was very encouraged by, after, after some initial extreme resistance, I was eventually encouraged by the Chabad rabbi because we really loved each other. And, and he, um, you know, I became like an emissary for him. I used to bring the music students over for Shabbos. <laughs> and um, so I considered and I started even talking to and working with a little bit a Chabad rabbi for conversion. But um, but the conversion issue really highlighted that other thing I was talking about, which was, can I step fully in and put aside my own sense of what's right and what's wrong? And ultimately, I couldn't. So I could not convert Chabad. Um and uh, later on in my uh, 20s, um, as you know, I, I got pulled into, uh, in a very unplanned way, I got pulled into making Jewish music for Shabbat services at a synagogue in Berkeley. And um, at first, I didn't want to do it. I was just becoming more and more observant myself. And so I didn't want to play music on Shabbos. But um, the the person who was encouraging me to do it, who ran the play, ran that synagogue, um, wasn't really a synagogue. That was a Jewish meditation center. Um, was uh, very persuasive, and I'm glad he was because it really became such a huge part of my life. But as I became involved with that world, which is the Jewish renewal world, there really was no issue. No one really cared <laughs> whether I was halachically Jewish or not. So it didn't become an issue until. Um, my father's uh, sons from his second marriage after my mother, after they were divorced, he married a Jewish woman and they uh, were brought up in a conservative synagogue. And so when it became, when it came time for the first one, my brother, Adam, 
who uh, sadly uh, passed away. He's no longer alive um, of brain cancer. But he, when he had his bar mitzvah, I couldn't, I couldn't participate in the ceremony. I couldn't have an aliyah. I couldn't do anything because I wasn't halachically Jewish. And so I thought to myself, this is a good excuse to just go, go ahead. Now I have a reason to have a conversion <laughs> and I'll do it in the conservative world. And luckily at that time, uh, I was friendly with Rabbi Alan Liu, who's also no longer alive, but he, and he was doing Jewish meditation in San Francisco. Um, I went through a Jewish meditation program in the early 2000s um, at Chochmat Halev, which is that meditation center I told you about. And so I knew him and I called him up and I said, what do you think about doing a conversion? And he was very happy to do that. And so they they got a baked in together. And I went and they they do a <laughs> it's really hard if you're not circumcised, because you have to you have to become circumcised. Luckily, my parents did a medical circumcision, uh, had me do that when I was a baby. So that wasn't a problem. They just do it symbolic and you go in the mikvah and so on. So I had a conversion. Um and uh and that was it. That's I had a conversion for a very specific practical reason, and I haven't had a, uh, any particular reason to do anything else beyond that. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I didn't know yeah. the entirety of the story or, or the catalyst for why you did it at that moment. But that's Yeah, beautiful. that was why, yeah. Well, I love it. Okay. So we started getting forward in your journey musically, and uh, I want to pause for a moment and rewind the tape musically because there's some very... Uh, cool and funny things that happened earlier in your musical life that I want you to share if you remember. If not, I can remind you <laughs> because we go way back. And so talk about your early musical influences, and then we're going to bring it together and bring the worlds together. Well, my biggest musical influence when I was four years old and still till now <laughs> was Jesus Christ Superstar, <laughs> the, uh, you know, Andrew Lloyd Webber rock opera. My grandmother played that for me and I was so enthralled. And I, and I really credit that musical for getting me interested in religion and spirituality and really Judaism, because um, if you're familiar with that, that show um, it's really the story of Jesus from a very Jewish point of view. He's not, it's not a Christian story. And that's why a lot of the, in the Christian world, they hated that and they banned, um, they banned it. Even though Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice are not Jewish, um, they really painted that story from a very human, um, you know, he's a teacher and he was living in the time of the Jews being oppressed by the Romans and they were looking for salvation from Roman uh, persecution. And so I had that feeling deep within me from a very young age implanted with that power of that like progressive rock music of that, that feeling of um, being part of a people that were, that were yearning for freedom. And that just colored my experience of Pesach and eventually Shabbat and everything. And somehow those things were imprinted very early, uh, both <laughs> through the religious um, context and through the progressive rock context. <laughs> I love it. And then sort of later on, I know that you went to uh, school for, you, I think, classical music and more progressive classical music. And also, obviously, you're into progressive rock as well. But I seem to recall, and tell me if I'm wrong here, there was a, was it a boy band or a rap group or something that was? Ah, yes. <laughs> story. It's a great story. Um, well, the first popular rap song came out in 1970 something, I think 78. 
Um, it was Rapper's Delight with a Sugar Hill Gang. And I, my friend, uh, Jamie, I remember him, <laughs> he played that for me and I loved it. And so I just started rapping. I started making up my own raps. Eventually I got together with some other guys and one of them was older. One of them was like 19 years old. And so he would, he had a car, he would drive us around and we started driving out to Inglewood, New Jersey and hanging out at Sugar Hill Records. Eventually we would just hang out there all the time in the summertime when we weren't in school, we would hang out during the summer and we met the Sugar Hill gang. We met Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. We met the um, Sylvia Robinson and Joe Robinson, who were the producers that created Sugar Hill Records. And eventually we got signed and did a record. And that that recording still exists. I found it in the 90s on Telegraph Avenue in Amoeba Records, um, put together because Sugar Hill Records is no longer exists but all of those recordings were bought by rhino records in los angeles which puts together compilations of things and so it exists even now it's called sugar it's called a uh, history of rap the sugar hill records story and it has all of the recordings from that time including our song on there we were originally called the chili crew that was the name of our rap group but it got changed to the chili kids and we were the first white rap group kids <laughs> and we were terrible <laughs> we were really bright we were really bad in many ways um but nevertheless that record did come out so it's it's a funny thing you can find it you can find it on spotify you can find it on youtube <laughs> it's hilarious chili kids I the chili love kids it. yeah um, and then it and the single the single that was recorded was called at the ice arcade and it was about video games, <laughs> but it was like, you know, chill out at the ice arcade kind of thing. Wait, how old were you when you did this? I was, uh, well, I think I started getting into it when I was 11, 12. And I had that band that wasn't a band, really. It was just a rap group with a DJ um, in that time, like around 12, 13 years old. Okay. So that group disbanded, broke up, imploded, yes. as, as all many bands do. And then sort of fast forward, how did, you know, your music, obviously, Hochmat was maybe where it landed in the Jewish world, but was what right. happened in there? What was, the, what was the journey like? Um, well, I had a few different progressive rock bands in high school, friends that I played with who I still play with um, in more in the Jewish context, because um, I roped them into it later in, <laughs> in Berkeley, as you know. Um, but we did that in high school. And then I also got into jazz in high school, played in the jazz band. And I, at some point I realized it would be nice to go to music school. Cause that was really what I was focusing on. I never had the idea of being a rabbi as a career path. Um, but, uh, I wasn't really, I didn't feel I was good enough to go to music school as a player because I came to it so late in life. I really, my parents not my parents. My mother tried to get me to practice when I was younger and was not successful. So it was really coming back to it on my own, but not having the chops in the same way that uh, was necessary to go to music school. And then somehow I found out that you could go as a composer and I was writing a lot of music. So I thought, wow, could I, could I compose concert music, like modern classical music and go to music school for that. And I knew about Eastman because I went to the high school jazz summer program two years in a row um, and I hooked up with an amazing teacher who's uh, also not alive anymore. His name was Arthur Cunningham. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
actually you can see there is he, there is a record um, put out by a guy named John Ellis on Spotify, which is John Ellis, a pianist playing Arthur Cunningham's music and interviewing him also. So when I found that on Spotify, I was amazed because it was great to hear my old teacher. Um, I consider him a spiritual teacher, not just a teacher of music, but he really got me prepared uh, with a portfolio of uh, compositions and um, helped me compose a bunch of classical music in like in the fall of my senior year of high school. And then I put it all together and it was based on Kabbalah. It was called the Spherot Suite. And um, I wrote a I wrote a piece for each of the Sphero. The Sphero are part of this, um, this glyph in Kabbalah of these 10 divine qualities. And um, so I wrote these little pieces for each of those. And, and I got into all the schools. And I went to Eastman, which had a wonderful composition program. Amazing. And so did you see, and we'll talk more about Kabbalah later in the show, but did you see yourself kind of going down the route of becoming a classical composer? Was that what you had in, in mind at that point? And in what shifted? Well, I really didn't know because um, because the, the way it works is if you want to be a classical composer, the the main way you do that is you, be, you go on and uh, get a doctorate and you become a professor. And then you teach. And you're also, you get commissions and you're paid to write music at, at the same time. And I was a little in denial about the fact that I was never going to do that. <laughs> just, just not, uh, school wasn't, wasn't for me so much. One of the things that you and I probably share <laughs> in common, <laughs> that school, school was, um, I mean, I, I, I was happy to, I wanted to do the bachelor degree, but I knew I wasn't going to go on and become a professor. So I really didn't know what I was going to do. Um, but various things happened and I wound up in Berkeley, uh, for various reasons because of friends and so on. And I just started, um, actually it's a really funny story. I needed a job when I moved to Berkeley and I got a job at, uh, Comerford's heating and air conditioning company, making cold calls to set up, to set up appointments for an engineer to come to your house and inspect your heating and cooling system. These engineers, it turned out, I didn't know at the time, were um, corrupt salesmen that would sabotage the systems of elderly people and then sell them new systems. Um, I, after I didn't work there anymore, I saw it in the paper that they were um, shut down for corruption. But at the time, I was trained as a salesperson, and I was actually really good at it. I worked there for several months. I made lots of appointments and um, and I thought to myself, if I can cold call people and sell things, why don't I cold call um, schools and sell myself as a music teacher to come and do music programs for kids? Mm-hmm. And so I took a week off and I said, let me take off for the week. I, I, I'll let you know after the week if I'm coming back. And I set up free music demonstrations. The entire week was the entire next week was booked. So, um, so I stopped having jobs at that point. And from there, from teaching in the schools, I got piano students. So I really started going down the, the road of being a music teacher. And then at the same time with my friends got together another incarnation of that prog rock band, which eventually became Captain Zohar, <laughs> which was a name uh, created by one of the guys in the band. I love it. Okay. If for anyone listening that doesn't know what the Zohar is, can you explain that reference? Yeah. The Zohar is the uh, most central te- text of Kabbalah. And it's um, 
comes from uh, medieval Spain is when it was written. And there's a tradition that the Zohar was written by some Talmudic, uh, mostly by a Talmudic sage. Um, but secular scholars think it was written by a guy, by a Spanish rabbi <laughs> um, at the time, but that he attributed it to an earlier writing in order to get it more, uh, to, to make it seem more legit. <laughs> but a lot of, right? yes, exactly. Yeah. And the, the one, the one that the secular scholars believe wrote it was his name was Moses de Leon or Moshe de Leon. Um, yeah. So it's a, it's a famous, um, book where a lot of the Kabbalistic ideas that we have, uh, have their origin, but then they were expanded on and developed by later Kabbalists. Absolutely. Okay. So, and I'm very well familiar with that band. I think I, I helped <laughs> some of the music, spent hours on right. music, which I absolutely love. Yeah. Uh, so you can probably find it online somewhere to t check it out. And so there's one experience now kind of bringing all this all together. Obviously you were doing, you wrote classical music based on a spherot. So that was kind of already happening. And then your, your prog rock band was Captain Zohar. So it was all kind of coming together, right. but not necessarily liturgically just yet. So I think they were still kind of a little bit separated. Right. But I want you to speak about, you had this moment, I believe sometime in your twenties, a sort of awakening moment and it's such a powerful story. So maybe you can share that and then let us know what happened after that. Sure. So, just to give the context, I think that my interest in spirituality from a very early age, like four years old, was always driven by the desire to experience something about something about reality or or a different kind of reality um, that was not uh, the norm. That was not something that people talked about and and shared in in, in our shared world that we live in something deeper. And that's kind of was hinted at by those, um, the veiled light that I saw <laughs> as Judaism having some, being some kind of um, veiling the light in some way. And, and as I got older and I learned um, about Kabbalah and I learned that there was this esoteric dimension of Judaism, um, which proclaimed that God was not merely a an entity, a deity, but was actually the divine reality behind everything that we could become aware of through esoteric practice. Um, I became aware of that. And I also became aware of other traditions that were saying similar, similar stories. I learned transcendental meditation when I was 12 years old. Um, my father paid for the family to learn it mostly because he was impressed by the health benefits of meditation. So it was really mysticism that was driving me. And um, I feel that there was a process that I went through of, uh, well, I should say, let me just back up. I had a mystical experience when I was 18, and that experience showed me what was possible. So it was um, very revolutionary. I felt like my ego dropped away. I was no longer concerned for myself, for my image, for any, any personal, anything. And I just felt like I was on fire with the light of God <laughs> and I, it was just love and it was light and that was it. And that lasted for about a week. And then it, over time it faded. So that really before, before that I was a seeker cause I was interested in it. But once I had that experience, I wanted to get back to that experience and that became my driving motivation. That was also part of why I didn't become a Chabad person because 
even though Chabad teaching teaches about that exact thing, I looked around and I saw a lot of strict rules and rituals, but I didn't see anybody on fire the way I had been. So it didn't, I didn't get the proof. Like that was really what I should do. And, um, I, I feel that over, over my entire, uh, twenties, you know, from that time that I had that experience when I was 18 till I was about 29, I would keep coming back in my mind to that experience. And I would keep thinking about it and trying to work it out in an intellectual way. I did a lot of writing and I, um, at a certain point, I came to the end of my writing. I said, okay, I, I explained it to myself. <laughs> I wrote out a philosophy of Jewish spirituality and yay, great. But I still am not back to that experience. <laughs> and, um, and then I had, and then something very strange happened. I said to myself, well, if I could, if I could write the whole thing out and explain it to myself and understand it intellectually, and yet that doesn't help me to get there, then the, then the, the answer must not be an intellectual answer, and the intellect must not be the way to get there. And so I said, well, if the intellect is not the way to get there, then what if I try not the intellect, try just coming to the present moment and letting go of the intellect and seeing how the present moment is without the intermediary of intellect. And it was just, it was on a Sunday, I think it was in October 6th of 1998. And I was just sitting in my room and I said, okay, I'm going to do it right now. And I'm going to just keep doing it. I'm going to keep whenever thoughts enter my mind, if they're not important that like I need to figure something out, I'm just going to let them go. And I'm going to come back to the present moment all day long. And something very intense started to happen once I started doing that. It was a process that lasted about a week. Um, there were times in that during that week that I felt kind of psychotic and I couldn't even function. And there were other times when I was just in complete bliss and fire with God. Um, but when that it was an actual process that was happening to me and it lasted about a week. And by the end of the week, it just ended. It stopped. And I, it was like being reborn. Like I came out a different person. I was the same person, but there was one difference. And the difference was that the, um, that which I was seeking for so long was now available. It wasn't like a constant experience, but it was available to me. I could walk through that door any moment simply by becoming present. Um, so it, that's what it changed in me. And at that point I started to, um, think about Judaism and Jewish teaching through the lens of presence. And I did some writing about it. I started teaching in various ways about it. And that was really the beginning of a different way of approaching Judaism, which eventually became what I call Torah awakening as the community where I lead the meditation and so on. But what was the next step after that? You said, okay, I had this experience and now I want to. Oh, yes, there was actually, right. There is an important next step, which is that um, the thought that came into my mind once that process completed itself and I, and I realized that, that bringing myself into a state of presence or present moment awareness was very easy and very simple and that everything I searched for spiritually was available and right there just by doing that. <laughs> but the first thought in my mind after realizing that was, what do I need Judaism for? I don't need Judaism. I don't need these rituals. I don't need to say I'm going to only eat certain things or any of that stuff because it's so simple. And so I started going 
through life day after day like that. But what happened is that that state of presence often left me feeling raw and beat up by the end of the day because all of the things I had to deal with in life throughout the day, the chaos of the city and the various tasks, responsibility, whatever, it, I, I, I had no, um, I felt emotionally wounded every day because the presence made me so open and vulnerable. I would start crying throughout the day, for example, just spontaneously, <laughs> just feeling the pain of other people that I would see in the street. Um, so I, so, so at that point I said to myself, well, I, I don't know if I can live like this. This is like, this, this doesn't really work. I'm going to have to go live in a retreat center. I can't function in the world. And then it occurred to me, what if I do what Reb Zalman asked me to do back when I was 19 years old? Because I had called him when I had that original awakening experience and I've had a conversation with him and he told me to do something which I had never done. Um, I mean, I did it a little bit, but I didn't really take it to heart, which is he told me to put on a talit, put on tefillin and let the tefillin teach me about themselves. <laughs> Open myself to the, open myself to the tefillin and let them teach me something like that. So I had a set of tefillin. It was kind of an old, falling apart set that I had, and um, I maybe I had put them on a little bit before at some point. But I said, let me put them on now, and let me get out my siddur. I had several siddurim that I'd studied in various ways, and let me start doing some Hebrew prayers. And as soon as I started doing that, I felt flooded with healing energy. I felt like, oh my God, this just doing this is helping me to function in two different worlds at the same time. It's helping me to be open and vulnerable through this presence that I discovered and had worked. But then it's giving me this context. And it was almost as if the talid and the tefillin on my body actually felt like like shields, you know, like like um sacred uh protection, protection in a certain way. And I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. Um, it had never occurred to me before. And so that set me, that really uh, lit a motivation within me to start bringing Judaism back into my practice. And I had been, I had flirted with it over the years and practiced things very intensely for a short time and then let them go completely. But at that point, I started just taking on Jewish practice step by step and incorporating it, incorporating into my life and not wiffle waffling back and forth. Um, that also kind of relates to the, the story about getting into the Jewish music, because at that point in my life, I was ready to not, I was ready to take on the practice of being Shomer Shabbat in the totally traditional sense of not playing music on Shabbat. But because of the situation of uh, Avram Davis asking me to play music um, in the services um, I took that on and then that became part of my practice. Um, I have no interest in not playing music on Shabbat anymore. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the way as the, as the Mandalorian says. <laughs> wow, that's so powerful. You know, I've never heard anyone else outside of my own mind speak of uh, Talis and Tefillin as like armor sort of protection. Yeah. I 100% feel that. I mean, yeah. I, not that this podcast is about me, but it's just, it's, it's so interesting to hear you say that because when I meditate without Talis and Tefillin, I feel like, like I'm, I'm, I'm too open and I need to protect myself. I, mm. I, 
And, and so 98% of the time I mail, except for on spot, meditate with Thomas and Phil and I feel like, okay, I'm grounded, you know? And, and so I love that you shared that. Uh, so much more to unpack there for sure. Okay. So, but I want to get to kind of what you're doing now. And, uh, I know that you wrote a book or two books on Kabbalah and Jewish meditation. Talk just a little yeah. bit about that and, and let people know where they can find those as well. Okay. Well, there was a point around 2015 um, after I, I had been teaching meditation. I had been leading small groups at uh, Chokmat 11 Berkeley for several years, probably since 2005, six, something like that. And um, we went to, as a family, we moved to Costa Rica for a short time. And uh, I had a friend at the same time who was encouraging me to do Jewish meditation online. And he was pestering me about it for years. So I sort of uh, experimented with various ways of doing it. And then in 2016, I officially launched an online community. And um, and that changed and developed in different ways. But um, I guess one of the one of the one of my main questions for myself in in before I launched it was how do I present the uh, benefits of tefillah, of what we do with traditional Jewish davening, Jewish prayer, in a meditative context and make it accessible for everyone, just on a beginner's level, even if you don't know Hebrew, any of those things. And that question led me to this development of this um, practice, which I call the three portals. And it involves a little bit of body movement, a little bit of chanting Hebrew words, and it takes you through these three stages of becoming present, which I think are essential. And if you don't have the, you don't, of course, you don't have to do the three portals to become present. But um, there are certain um, ways that people uh, get hung up when when trying to practice meditation. One of them, for example, is I'm trying to meditate to have a certain kind of experience or to become relaxed or to empty my mind. And just having that agenda itself is antithetical to meditation because meditation is about being with the moment as it is. It's not about getting somewhere or accomplishing something. So that's one of the ways that this three portal practice um, or one of the things that that three portal practice comes to solve. And there are other aspects of it too, but um, I took all of the aspects of the three portals practice that I teach and that we do every day on, on in our Torah awakening daily meditations um, is taken from certain uh, rituals and movements and chanting that happen in traditional davening, but just done in a very simple way that anyone can do. I love it. And, you know, one of the translations of meditation I've heard, and there's a lot is to become familiar with, right? Hmm. I think this is Dr. Joe Dispenza, how he brings it down to become familiar, mm. with, right? To, to mm. get get to know your your experience of of the world, right? As opposed mm. to I'm going to get somewhere. And this is also the challenge when someone has a like uh, an experience of oneness or an ecstatic experience in meditation. The mind wants to get back there. You know, you're always right. like, get back there. If I could, you know, if I can just do this one thing. And so just to be where you are. So there's so much more to unpack around Jewish meditation. And I want you to talk a little bit more about Torah of Awakening, how people can find it, what it is, who it's for, and where they can access your teachings around all that. Yeah, well, um, it's all on the website. So you can just go to TorahOfAwakening.com. 
And what it is, is it's uh, it's a few different things. But I would say the, the basis of the whole thing is that it's a community. It's a community of people get together and practice Jewish meditation. And um, I, I teach, I do sessions Sunday through Thursday for the whole uh, membership. And uh, Sundays, I recently introduced a shacharit service. So we actually have traditional davening, but done in a particular way that's accessible to everyone, regardless of whether they know Hebrew or not, through transliteration and also through a, um, focusing in on the main points of the text, as opposed to the way it is traditionally, which is way, way, way too many words to be able to do in a reasonable amount of time, unless you're completely rushing. <laughs> and so that's my main, I would say that's my main critique about traditional Judaism today is that davening is rushed. I mean, that's, that's just the way it's done. And that comes from the fact that you, you have this um, assumption that you have to get through all these words. And you, of course you have to go to work or do whatever you can't stand there all day. And so you rush, 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 rush. And um, to me, that's absurd. <laughs> so it's actually been a, um, uh, a question for me for so many years, how can I bring the beauty and power and of, of traditional davening to people in a way that's not rushed? And I feel like um, this is a very recent thing that I've started. I'm very happy about it, um, the way it works. So that's on Sunday mornings. Uh, 9.30 a.m. Pacific time, 12.30 Eastern, which is a little late for Shachri, but, you know, it's best we can do. <laughs> um, on Mondays, I'll give a teaching. Um, it's usually about the Parsha Shavua, the Torah reading of the week. And it's all it always ties whatever the theme in the Parsha is back to meditation and consciousness and presence. So I feel like the work that I've been doing is really the work of recontextualizing Judaism as a whole, as a path of presence, which is why I call it Torah of Awakening, the Jewish path of presence. I love it. So it's um, Sunday, there's a Shacharit service, and then Monday through, is it on Friday, or just Monday through Thursday, there's a meditation with teaching? Right. Well, Monday's the teaching, and then the other days is just meditation and chanting, with very, very short teaching, perhaps, in the beginning. And then on Wednesday nights and Fridays, there's also a more... Um, uh, involved uh, level of the membership, what I call the Mastering Presence membership. And people who want to do that are people who want to really go deeper with the tradition, learn more Hebrew, more complex chanting, visualizations, body movements, and it's really based on Kabbalah. And we um, do a practice that I call the 32 Paths Practice, where we um, invoke the spherot of the tree of life and the 22 Hebrew letters and really spend time connecting with the qualities of each of those things. So for example, and when I say qualities, I mean that these are qualities, qualities of presence. So for example, the letter Aleph is the quality or, and the intention of really feeling whatever emotions are there. Now, why would you do that? What's the point of that? Well, because as we go through life, the we are unconsciously suppressing emotions all the time because we have to, because it's, we wouldn't be able to function if we didn't do that. But in doing so, we we reinforce the egoic sense of separation between ourself and the rest of reality because we're constantly tightening inside and holding back emotions. So one of the effects of meditation is to let all the emotions be felt and then they then they revert back into their natural state, which is consciousness. But if you're holding them back all the time, then you're actually creating a, a, like a almost like a a separateness in your own nervous system, and you're reducing the amount of consciousness that's available to you. So that's the letter Aleph. The letter Bet 
is welcoming the moment, hospitality, like the bite. Gimel, gadol, has to do with feeling your inherent wholeness and vastness, which is what, what consciousness is. So all of the 32 paths have very specific qualities that we can connect to and then call upon in situations as, as needed. I love it. Okay. Well, there's obviously a lot more there that you'll, you'll need to unpack. And um, so I definitely want to encourage people to check out the Torah of Awakening or TorahofAwakening.com and you can become yeah. a member and you can follow Brian and check out his books and material. But let me ask you a question. Yeah. Why is meditation important for humans? Meditation is important for humans because um, without it, we are operating through a mind-created version of reality, and we're not experiencing reality directly. Now, if you believe the movie The Matrix, maybe you don't want to do that because reality in The Matrix is, is worse. <laughs> but the truth is that reality is actually better because the reality is that we are consciousness. That's what we are. We are not this body, although we have a body. We are not our emotions or our thoughts, although we have emotions and thoughts, but the emotions and thoughts and our physical bodies are being experienced by us within consciousness. Consciousness is not something, is not like a spirit stuck in our body, looking out of our eyes, navigating through the world. Everything we see in the world, everything around us is all arising within consciousness. So we experience, go through life experiencing all this different stuff. But it's so rare to notice what we actually are. And what we are is inherently free, uh, spacious. And when when our thoughts and emotions also pick up on that and notice that, the natural spontaneous result of that is joy and creativity. So it's it's very, very important to meditate. And I would say my unsolicited advice to everyone is um, is healthy food, enough sleep, exercise, and meditation. You got it. That's that's the core for taking care of yourself. <laughs> Amen. Okay. Last but not least, and I really want to thank you for your time. I know you're very busy with what you're doing and your family. And what do you think the Jewish world needs most now? Well. I don't know what the Jewish world needs most now. All I know is what I can offer it. And what I offer it may be what it really needs most now. <laughs> and um, what I think that is, is a, is, is, is a practical, accessible, transformative spiritual path. Or many, or many versions of it. But, we, but people, Jewish people, need a path that's workable. I think the most um, uh, tragic thing about the Jewish world today is that whether you're on one hand, very, very committed, perhaps very orthodox, very much practicing, davening every day, observing all the rules, or you're completely disconnected from all that stuff. Maybe you go to a synagogue once in a while, maybe you don't ever go. But regardless of where you are in that spectrum, um, having deep transformative Jewish spiritual practice is actually rare in both of those contexts. It's rare because in the traditional world, um, it's just often not experienced in a deep way. It's experienced in a way which reinforces the tradition and which also is, has numerous side benefits, such as the community and the structure of the spirituality and the learning. Of course, the learning is, is very 
the learning is great in Judaism. <laughs> That's nothing wrong with the learning, the intellect part. That's very developed. But to actually um, have the practices show us experientially what we really are on the deepest level, that potential is there. But it needs to happen way, way more. So that's why I like to do this. That's why I'm inspired to do this work. I love it. It's so interesting. You know, I feel like all of the practices and all of the structure of Judaism is actually designed to do exactly that. It's I do do. I yeah. to do it. Yes. But, may, there, but there's a, uh, there's a gap in kind of the, the origin of design versus the naming of experience and how to integrate it all. Right. I feel like there's absolutely. A, yeah. Right. So, uh, so we definitely agree for sure about that. And I think that, you know, some of the work you're doing will definitely help to bridge that gap for sure, which is, it's so needed, you know, rather than just doing things by rote. Right? That's right. We really, we really, we really get it. You have an upcoming smicha that I wanted to uh, uh, oh. let the world know about, and maybe you can talk about why uh, that movement or that particular rabbi and anything else around that. So, um, since I started the Tour of Awakening community in 2016, my role with the folks that belong to that um, and show up like almost every day for these Zoom meditations has become more and more rabbinic. I mean, I, I, I try to hold a space for people to connect with each other, not just do the practice, but also connect with each other and um, share where they're at and, and experience as a group the process of spiritual development. And um, so these are these are rabbinic roles, and uh, my friend Rabbi David Zaslow in Ashland has seen that for many years, and um, he's kind of been a mentor for me. And he reached out to me several years ago and said, "You're at a point where we need to get a bait in together and um, give you smicha as a rabbi." And so it's taken me a while to <laughs> kind of take that in and uh, accept it, and. Um, and finally respond and say, okay, let's do that. Let's, let's make a date. And so it, that, this is when it's happening on the weekend of Shavuot. Um, well, Shavuot starts on a Thursday night and then it's Friday and Saturday, and there's going to be an event. The, uh, the technical aspect of the smicha, the signing of the document and so on will happen before the holiday starts because um, that's not a thing to do <laughs> on Shabbat or the holiday. Um, but the celebration of it and the, you know, communal aspect will happen um in community uh, at that event. So I'm very grateful to Rabbi David and um, the other rabbis that are going to um, participate in that. And uh, all my friends who are going to be up there, it's going to be a lot of fun. Amazing. Well, Mazel Tov in advance on your smicha. It's amazing. You. For anyone that's not familiar with that, what that word means, it's like rabbinic ordination, right? That's in this context. That's how we're using that word. Uh, and then, you know, one thing I wanted to, to call an audible to, to point out, is you represent this this a new emerging model, right? I've interviewed a couple rabbis and then a musician, and then there's a lot of other people on the list that are they're coming in the 613 episodes of this podcast. Oh, nice! <laughs> represent really acting as in soon to be you know officially smicha as, as a rabbi out of the context of a pulpit rabbi in the sense of having like a traditional. Right. So it's a really unique model. So I think if there are people that are listening to the podcast, you know, we've heard from a reform rabbi, a conservative rabbi, and then we're going to hear from an Orthodox rabbi and Chabad, all these different people, just so people can understand the breadth of Jewish experience and practice and what's possible. Brian is a good person to connect to 
for a, a really non-traditional path and how it expresses itself. And so I, I, I commend your journey. It's very unique. And uh, you're, you can be a great resource for people that are certainly curious about Jewish meditation, want to deepen their understanding of Kabbalah, and also, of course, ritual as well. And I know that you're doing a little bit of independent B'nai Mitzvah studies as well. Do you want to mention that real quick before we wrap up? Sure. Yeah. Um, I have something I've done for many years, kind of parallel with the Jewish meditation teaching is working with children, um, kind of grew out of my teaching music to children, which I did, uh, for many, many years. And I still do. Um, but, uh, the, one of the things that's unique about the, the B'nai Mitzvah journey that I, uh, tried to give my students, um, who are trying to study for Bar Bat Mitzvah, is that it can, in a way, it's a little bit of the best of both worlds because really the best thing is to be part of a, a synagogue, to be part of a community. And then the ritual of Bar Bat Mitzvah is to come into that community as an adult. That's what the ritual is about. Um, however, unfortunately, um, for the way, you know, the way, the way our Jewish culture is in America at this time, tradition, uh, synagogues, both traditional and non-traditional, often don't work for people. So a lot of people want to do some, they still want to be connected. They want to do an independent ceremony and have that independent um, uh, special attention to their child to learn. But the problem is that then if you do the do the ceremony, it's not coming into anything. There's no community. You're, you learn how to lead a service and you do your one service one time in your life. <laughs> it's a little bit silly. So um this new uh, service that I'm doing on Sunday mornings that started a few months ago is um, is a wonderful context for everybody to participate and be part of something that they're actually coming into. So a big part of the program is not just learning, uh, practicing how to lead prayers, but actually being part of prayers and um, and learning to lead it bit by bit as you come into that, come toward your bar bat mitzvah ceremony. So that it's not a performance and it really shouldn't be a performance. It should be a communal ritual. Um, so that's that, that. those are the problems that I saw and that I tried to solve with this. And of course, the other aspect is that it really emphasizes both meditation and music, which I think are so important and wonderful for everybody, but especially for young people um, when they're starting to enter those teen years where there's a lot of potential emotional pain and confusion and the growth of 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 the self <laughs> during that time. And there are many unhealthy things that kids can turn to in those times. So it's so important to have healthy ways to experience bliss and joy through music and meditation and, um, and the davening practice. So that's what I try to make available. I love it. I love it. Well, that's definitely a need as well for, cause I've done a lot of independent B'nai Mitzvot as a musician, cantorial soloist person. And, you know, yeah. that's, it's it's community, right? Okay, now you're a man, you're a woman, and then what? Okay. <laughs> you provide a context for that. So, um, Reb Brian, I want to thank you so much for your time and your wisdom. And uh, if you're out there in the world listening, definitely go to TorahOfAwakening.com. Check out Brian's content and check out his meditation and his services and his books. There is a wealth of, uh, of beautiful encounters with Judaism available for you. And I highly encourage you to try on some of his techniques and things that he teaches because they absolutely work. And he does it in a very sweet, loving way with humor. So uh, I just want to give you a blessing that uh, Hashem could, should continue to bless you 
with Parnasa, Simcha, Shalom, you should touch a lot of people and connect to a lot of people who can't find their way in, that are really looking for a way in to Judaism, Jewish practice, to meditation, and that you can be the portal for them. So with that, I want to say thank you so much. Thank you so much, Saul. Pleasure to be here, and may you be blessed as well in all of those ways and all of your work. Thank you so much. Amen, amen. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the Holy Sparks Podcast. I'm your host, Saul Kay. Please subscribe. It helps the podcast. Share this with friends and family who you think will be inspired by the content. And we will see you on our next episode.